says again, verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always what? Obeyed. Here Paul is commending these believers something they've always done. They've always obeyed. Uh, I like a song written by Ron Hamilton. He said, Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. The way we show others that we are believers is by obedience to the Lord. So here he tells us that we are that working out salvation involves obedience. Notice it's obey when others are present. In other words, obey when others are watching. He says, you have always obeyed, not in my presence only. So while they were there, while Paul was there and he established a church, led the people to Christ, trained them, taught them, they always were obedient to the Lord. Obey when others are watching, but also obey when others are absent. Obey when others are absent. In other words, when they're not watching. He says, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my what? Absence. Evidently, he heard these believers who are obedient while he was there, maybe have slipped away or not obeying while he was gone. You ever heard the term when the cat's away, the mouse play? And no doubt this is what was going on. He said, you always obey when I was there, also do it in my absence. Interesting. When I was going to Bible college, I worked at Publix as a bag boy. Our manager's name was Mr. Martin. We referred to him as a taskmaster because he was a difficult man to work for. He was just a really uh, made you work hard, and he kept his eye on you. And what he said, because then it was such a uh, busy store that the bag boys had to walk out with the, golf, uh, with the carts with the customers because many times they'd take them out and leave them out there. And after a while, there'd be no carts inside for the new people to come in. So he required us to walk out with a customer, unload the cart in their car, and come back. He always said this, when you walk out with a customer, you walk at their pace. But when you come back, you walk at my pace. <laughs> and so we had to run back to there to the, uh, bag more groceries. Well, what I found to be true, when Mr. Martin was away, and he had to be away in the morning, uh, they walk out at the customer's pace and walk back at the customer's pace. When the person was not there watching, they did not, they obeyed in his presence, but not in his uh, absence. And so, uh, go with me now to Ephesians chapter 6. It talks about this. Ephesians 6, keep your finger in Philippians. Ephesians, right before this book. Ephesians 6, page 1650, please. How important it is in order for you and I to work out our salvation involves obedience. Obedience when people are watching, people when they're not watching. And it talks about here, it talks about servants and masters. We could apply this to, we could say, employees and employers. It would apply to that situation. Look in Ephesians 6, verse 5. He says, servants, may we use the word employees, be obedient to them that are your what? Masters, your employers, not according to the flesh, excuse me, according to your flesh, with fear and trembling, it says, and singles the heart as unto what? Christ. But read on, not with eye service as men please. What does that mean? In other words, many Christians will serve when people are watching. They do it with eye service as men pleasers. The only time you live right and obey the Lord is when people are watching and you're pleasing men. We should, we should obey when people watch. We should obey when people are not watching because somebody is always watching. Who's that? 
God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say, verse 6, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, verse 7, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to what? Men. I know the Bible college students, as they worked at Publix, they wanted to uh, be a good testimony. So even when Mr. Martin was there or not there, they constantly obeyed, as he said. When he was there and they ran back, when he was not there, they ran back with the carts. They wanted to do it not as eye service, as men pleasers. They did it as unto the Lord. So what it's saying here, as a Christian, we should obey when people watch, when they're not watching, because we know that God's always watching. And we're serving not to please men, but we're doing as unto the Lord. Why? Because he's always watching. Another thing that's in, involved with working out your salvation, working out salvation involves obedience, but also requires trust. It requires trust, dependence upon God. How many realize that obedience is not always easy? It's not always an easy thing to do. So in order to do so, we need to trust, depend upon God to enable us to obey what he says. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. These words speak of the attitude in which Christians are to obey. It involves a healthy fear of God and a righteous awe and respect for him. Considering the importance and sometimes difficulty of obedience, we must continually depend upon God. In fact, the word there talks about the next one here in Philippians 2.13. We need to realize God is working in us. Realize God is working in us. It says, for it is God which worketh in you. The word worketh there means provides enablement. So when God saved you, he indwelt you by his spirit. His spirit lives inside you, and now he's working in you uh, in your life and trying to bring about your salvation out in the open so other people can see Christ in you. Realize God's working, but also God is working to make, both his, uh, make us both willing and desirous to do what he desires. God is working in us both to make us willing and desires, he said, worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Many times, here we do. <clears throat> Excuse me. We obey, but we don't want to. We do it because it's right to do, and it's what God has to do, but inside we don't want to. So God is working both to make you willing and desirous. Not only do what he says, but willing, have the right attitude. That I'll want to do it, and, and also to do it. He's working both to will and to do his good pleasure. This speaks of a divine enablement and human responsibility is important in working out our salvation. Next, working out your salvation involves obedience. It requires trust, dependence upon God. And I like this one. It includes no complaining. It includes no complaining. Look what it says again. Look at the context. He says in verse 13, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and do his good pleasure. Then he says, verse 14, Do all things without murmuring and what? Disputing. You know, some of the, I've found some of the greatest complainers are God's people. Some of the greatest critical people are God's people. It's sad. By the way, do you complain? Do you murmur? 
so many of us do. We constantly complain about what life brings us. And the Bible says, it didn't say do some things. It says do all things without murmuring. The word murmuring, so there's two improper responses. When God is working our life, by the way, look up here. God will use difficult people, tough situations to work on our lives. And sometimes we will respond by complaining, murmuring. Let me give you two improper, improper responses. Of course, the first one is grumbling and complaining. He said, do all things without murmuring. Murmuring is an emotional rejection of God's providence for one, and will for your life. Don't miss that, please. Murmuring, complaining, is an emotional rejection of God's providence and will for your life. The Bible says our God's sovereign. He's a sovereign God who wants and cares for us. And the Bible says everything that comes in your life has to have his approval of what happens. Nothing can come in your life without first going across the desk of God for approval. The good, the bad, all God has control of all of it, and he controls what happens in your life. And so basically when you grumble, you're grumbling against what God has allowed, what God is doing. It is emotional rejection of his providence and will for your life. Let me give you two important things about grumbling. I hope you don't miss these. Two important things, because maybe you're here today and you're very good at it. By the way, I don't have anybody in mind. <laughs> but you might be very good about grumbling, about complaining. Let me help you understand two important things about this. Hold your finger here. Go with me now to the book of Exodus. Exodus, page 109, if you're using a church Bible. Exodus chapter 16. If you read through the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers, you're going to find the Israelites were very good about murmuring. Over and over again, they murmured about what God had allowed in their lives. When you find Exodus, look here, please. When God led his people out of Egypt into the promised land, while they went through the wilderness to get to the promised land, God led them by day by a pillar of cloud and by night by a pillar of fire. I love that. God took care of his people. What's the temperature like in a desert at nighttime? It's cold, so he led them by a pillar of fire to keep them warm. What's the temperature like during the day? It's hot, so he put a cloud over them to prevent the heat. God took care of them, but he led them that way. And many times he led them where there was no food. He led them where there was no water, just to see how they might respond. Now, he was going to take care of them. But every time they responded by murmuring, complaining about it, even though God led them there. Look what it says here in Exodus 16, verse 2. He led them to a place where there was no food. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel, what? Murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Skip down to verse 7. After that, said, he, Moses said, And in the morning then you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he heareth your murmurings, because the Lord... Uh, against the Lord, and against, and what are we that you murmur against us? So the first thing, God hears your complaining. God hears your complaining. When you complain, man may hear it, but God hears it. You say, I just do it under my breath. God still hears it. He hears when you murmur and you complain. Someone said murmuring is a very similar to what it is. <laughs> just complain about criticizing what God's allowed in your life. God hears that. But next, don't miss this. Nothing about murmuring is all complaining is against God. 
all complaining, murmuring is against God. He says in verse 16, I'm sorry, chapter 16, verse 8. And Moses said, said this shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat and in the morning bread to be full. For the Lord, notice he says again, heareth your murmurings which you murmur against him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against what? Underline that, please. Now, back in verse 2, they were murmuring against Moses. They said, our problem is not with God, it's with Moses. We murmur against him. By the way, if you have a problem, ultimately it's all against God. You complain about it. You say, my, my problem is with my neighbor. It's with my boss. It's with my mechanic. It's with my car. And we murmur about that. But God says all murmuring ultimately is against what? If he is indeed control, and he, uh, he everything comes to life, he has to prove and allow. My friend, when you murmur, you may do it against a person thing and their fault. My friend, ultimately, it's God you're murmuring against. So next time you complain, realize that. You say, I'm complaining against my spouse. Yes, but ultimately, it's against God. Don't miss that. That might put a little... Uh, curtail on your complaining. So two, two improper responses, complaining, grumbling, and next improper is questioning and criticism, the word disputings. Do all things without murmuring and disputings. Disputings, now murmuring is a emotional response, a rejection of God's uh, will for your life. But disputings is more intellectual, which means questioning and criticizing Criticism directed negatively toward God. When you criticize what's going on in your life, you ultimately criticize toward God. You need to realize that. Because God's in control. He's allowed it for some reason and for some purpose. And you need, remember, trust. Trust the Lord that he's allowed it for some reason, some purpose. Both of them, murmuring and disputing, are evidence of our lack of trust in God. Both Murmuring and disputings are evidence of lack of trust in God. Interesting, the other day I was reading the two most popular verses in the Bible. You know what they are? Number one is John 3, 16, and number two is Romans 8, 28, among Christians. Now, what does Romans 8, 28 say? You know what It's on the screen, if you don't know. It says, for, and we know that some things work together for good. Does it say that? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And we know that most things work together for our... No, it says what? Oh. The pastor, can't you read? <laughs> All things work together for our good. To them that love God, to them that are thee called according to his purpose. Look at what please. What is it saying? Everything that comes in our lives. The Bible says all things, they work together for our what? Now, listen, it didn't say they're good. Some things, they may not be good. But God, in his sovereign and his power, can work them together for our what? Now, do you believe that? Why do you complain about it? Why do you complain about it? <laughs> if it's for your good, you, if you thought that and believed that, you wouldn't complain about it. And yet, so often we know, what should the proper response be? I'm glad you asked. Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always for all things. Unto God the Father, in the name of Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, my favorite preacher was Curtis Hudson. He's in heaven now. He's the heir to the soul of the Lord. 
But he preached on this verse one time. He said the only way that you and I can give thanks always for all things is connect the for all things in Ephesians 5.20 with all things in Romans 8.28. Give me thanks always for all things. Why? For all things work together for our what? So next thing you want to complain, give thanks. Thank him for it. You, say, you may say, I don't like it. He didn't say you had to like it. He said, I, uh, basically, it's not pleasant. It had to be pleasant. But God says he allowed it, and he's working it together for your good. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, not only for all things, in everything, give thanks. The situation you've been complaining about, situation that you have been criticizing what life has brought you away, God says in that situation, give thanks. Because we have a God that can work it together for our good. Next point. Thank you for listening. Why should we be obedient when people are watching or not watching? Why should we trust, depend upon God through it all and do it all without complaining? The reason why, number two, our testimony for Christ is at stake. Our testimony for Christ is at stake. Look at it again in the Philippians. Exactly what Paul's saying. He says there in verse 12, work out your own salvation, verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and do his good pleasure. Verse 14, do all things without murmuring and disputing. Why? Verse 15, that you may be blameless, harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights. What it's saying here is that when we, not complaining, allows the child of God to be three things. Not complaining. Number one, free from fault. He used the word blameless. That I can be blameless. Free from fault. As believers, we're called upon to work out our salvation as God is working in us. And we'll live our lives in such a way on the outside that no one can point their finger at you and accuse you of the reason why they haven't trusted Christ. I remember... Many years ago, my dad and I went to a, there used to be a truck stop here on 41 in Atlanta Lakes, and they served some of the greatest breakfasts. And so my dad and I would go to breakfast there, and while we were there, I had a gospel track I wanted to give them, had a church name on it, and the lady who served us did an outstanding job, and I wanted to give her a good tip, but I said, I got something I want you to read. She looked at it and said, First Baptist Church. She goes, oh, is that First Baptist Atlanta Lakes? Yes. Is that where, and mentioned name so-and-so goes, yes, it is. I'll never go to that church. I said, why? That person, mentioned my name, comes here every Saturday morning as the meanest, the ugliest, nastiest customer we have. Complains about all the food. It's never right. I don't know why they keep coming. They come every week. They always complain about it. <laughs> so that woman can point her finger at uh, that person as a reason why not to come to church, as a reason not to come to Christ. But there's another person in our church, and I'll mention his name. He's not here today. His name was Charlie McBride. Charlie McBride was the coach at the high school for many years. And years ago, I invited someone to our church, and he says, is that where Pastor McBride goes? I said, yes, I'll be happy to come. Because he had such a testimony, people wanted what he had and why he had it. And talk about when we do things like complaining, we can be blameless before the unsaved, free from fault. Number two, the second thing we can be, not complaining allows us to be, is Harmless, that means innocent. Harmless, innocent. 
Interesting, that word harmless means unmixed. It is a word used back in the Bible times. There are people sometimes that had a shop and they'd sell wine. But to increase their profit, they'd take pure wine and they'd water it down. They'd mix it with water. Increase the volume to sell two bottles of wine as well one increase their uh, income. Many times metalsmiths that sold gold and silver would boil it down and add some of the alloy to it and mix it with something to make it heavier and get more profit out of that. What it's saying here, Christian, you ought to be without any mixture of complaining, without any mixture of guile, that you might be someone who is not complaining or murmuring, being innocent, harmless. And the third word is above reproach. It means without rebuke. Above reproach, without rebuke, free from accusation or criticism. And did you notice where we're supposed to be live this way? It says, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. How many realize we live in a crooked and perverse nation? Sad to say, but that's true. But it's in that midst that you ought to be blameless, harmless, without rebuke, the sons of God, that, God, that you might be a good testimony. So not complaining allows you to be blameless, harmless, without rebuke, but also not complaining enables your testimony to shine brightly enables your testimony to shine brightly. It goes on to say in verse 20, verse 15, it says, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Have a bright, shiny testimony that other people like. Matthew 5, 14 says this. He said, Christian, you are the light of the world. Verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. That's the... Not complaining does. Allows my testimony to shine brightly for the Lord. Now, thirdly and lastly, what's the ultimate objective? Why should I work out my own salvation? Why should I consider my testimony? The ultimate goal is that the ultimate objective we see in verse 16. Verse 16, the ultimate objective in doing all this is as holding forth the word of life. Now, what is the word of life? Or who is the word of life? First of all, the ultimate objective right down is making Christ attractive to the unsaved. Making Christ attractive to the unsaved. The word holding forth means holding out, offering something for others to take. In our Christian life, through the lifestyle that we live, hopefully we're holding out Jesus and say, would you receive him as your Savior? By the way, is Jesus called the word of life? Yes, he is. Let me give it to you. Write it down. 1 John 1, 1. There it is. Let me quote it for you. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. Jesus is called the word of life. So as I'm living in such a way, I'm not complaining, not murmuring, but trusting God that's for my best and be thankful for it, I can hold forth Jesus Christ for people to receive. Number two, letter B, is making the gospel appealing to the lost. Making Christ attractive to the unsaved, making the gospel appealing to the lost. The word of life can also refer to the gospel. The gospel is God's word, the message of salvation that brings life when you believe it. When you believe the gospel, you receive eternal life. So what it's talking about here, Christian, is making the gospel appealing to the lost. Interesting. I believe the verse will be on the screen. 
Titus 2.10 says this. It says, showing all good fidelity that, ye, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, of God, our Savior, in all things. What does the word adorn mean? Many of you during Christmas time probably put up a Christmas tree. And you take little items and hang on the tree. What are those items called? Ornaments. They're placed on to adorn the tree to make it attractive. And you get down how beautiful the tree is. And what are your ornaments? Are they dirty clothes and filthy shoes and sticks? That doesn't make it attractive. It's beautiful things. And the way we make the gospel attractive and Jesus uh, appealing is by the lifestyle that we live. That in the midst of all the problems, because many times we have the same problems the unsaved have, physically and financially. But if you complain about it and murmur about it, why do they want your Savior? Why won't the God that you have? But amidst that, you can say, I don't understand, I don't like it, but thank God for it. Because God's working in my life. My friend, the unsaved will say, I want what you got. Make Christ attractive. Make the gospel appealing. So our focus this morning is living steadfastly. Being steadfast and trusting the Lord. What I mean by that? When hard times come, when difficult situations arise, mean people will come in your life. Instead of complaining and murmuring, trust God that he's using it to work together for my good. I may not like it. I don't want it. But God's allowed it, and he's working it together for my good. Isn't our God wonderful? He works all things together for our good. So as we are trying to work out our salvation, and we start going through problems and experience very difficult circumstances, we should not complain but trust the Lord that he's allowed this and ultimately is working it together for my good. Now let's close with this. Remember, our focus was on working out your own salvation. And again, I talked about, it's not talking about working for, it's working what? Out. Why? For God's working in you. But again, if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I, I'm still not convinced. I believe you've got to work your way to heaven. I believe I'm going to heaven by the lifestyle that I live, the good works I do, the thing, my behavior is what's going to determine where I go when I die. That is not what the Bible teaches. Again, I want to focus on one verse we looked at earlier. It's Titus 3, 5, be on the screen. Again, the first three works are not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to mercy has saved us. Here's a question for you. Why won't your righteous works save you? You ever thought about that? Now, listen carefully. What's the penalty of sin? The wages of sin is not righteous works. The wages of sin is death. So no matter how good you try to be, it will never pay for your sin. That's the problem. The penalty of sin must be paid. And good works won't pay the penalty. But this may be eye-opening for you. Your righteous works that you are looking to, depending upon to get you to heaven, God calls it filth. The very best you can do in the sight of God before salvation is filthy rags. Show me that, Pastor. Look on the screen. Isaiah 64, 6. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as what? Romans says, there's none that doeth good, no, not one. There's none righteous, no, not one. Now, if God, if you stood before God and God would say, listen, why should I let you in my heaven? What answer would you give? The popular answer is they begin to list off all their good deeds, all their good works, all my righteousness. Here's why you let me in heaven. And what does God see? A pile of filthy, stinking rags. And you say, you want me to let you in my heaven based upon your filth? My friend, good works can't save you. Christ saves. 
For by grace are you saved through faith. This salvation is not of yourself. Not anything you do yourself. This salvation is a gift from God. It's not by works. Someone's, I asked one person, Pastor, I said to him, I said, my friend, are you going to heaven? He said, I'm trying. So you need to quit trying and start trusting. Another one says, I'm working on it. I think you need to quit working and start relying. I'm doing my best. Quit doing and rest upon that which is done. Jesus, the work of salvation was finished at the cross. The price to be get there, he paid in full. And the last thing he said on the cross, it is finished. Referring to the work and the payment. We are saved not by anything that we do, but rather what Christ has done for us. When you realize you cannot save yourself, that you at your very best is filthy rags, and you have no hope of getting to heaven on your own, my friend, that's the reason God provided a Savior. He sent his son to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And your part is to believe, to receive Christ as Savior. And Christian, does your lifestyle back up that message? Does it support what Christ has done? I pray it does that our lifestyle will be ornaments of his grace that may make his Christ attractive and his uh, gospel message appealing. So let me close with this. My friend, have you ever trusted Christ? If you have, work out your own salvation. Put it to work in your everyday life. If you haven't, lay aside any work and receive the finished work of Christ. Let's bow together, please. As our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, Today I've been speaking to those of you that are already saved. That's who Paul was speaking to in the book of Philippians. And he said, therefore, brethren, he said, work out your own salvation. That comes with obedience, it comes with trust, and it comes by not complaining. Christian, do you find that you complain about many things? How does that make your Savior look? How does that make the gospel appeal to the unsaved? I pray that you'd purpose realize all complaining is against God. And he hears every criticism you make of what life has brought your way. May our lives be characterized by gratefulness, by gratitude, by thankfulness. But if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, you've always thought you had to be good to go to heaven, so you've been trying to earn God's favor, work your way to heaven, my friend, it's not by works. It says that over and over again, it's by grace. Grace is the opposite of works. And if you've never trusted Christ to be your Savior, you only hope for heaven, why not do it today? You can get the matter of salvation settled right here today, right where you're sitting in your own thoughts. If you've never trusted Christ, you've never depended upon him alone to be your Savior, why not right now tell him that? Why not talk to God and say something like this? Just say, dear God of heaven, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. And because I've sinned, I've earned, I deserve your punishment. But God, I believe your son Jesus was punished in my place. As my substitute, he died for me to pay for my sin. I believe he was buried. I believe he rose again. And God, realizing I can do nothing to save myself, I'm trusting Christ to save me, to forgive me, and to give me eternal life.
as heads are bowed and eyes are closed. My friend, if you trusted Christ as your Savior this morning, I would like to know that. I want to pray for you. I'm not going to put you on the spot. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to point you out. I want to pray for you. So one moment, not right now, in one moment, I'm going to ask you to simply raise your hand and indicate you trusted Christ this morning. Let me explain to you. Raise your hand doesn't save you. I want to pray for you. My prayer doesn't save you. Christ saved you and you trusted him. But it allows me to rejoice with you and allow me to include you in the closing prayer. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, if what I said made sense to you and you trusted Christ here this morning, with no one look around, no one leave, when you simply raise your hand real high and indicate you trusted Christ. And we're all, Pastor, here's my hand. I trusted Christ as my Savior. Would you pray for me? And one and all this morning. Father in heaven, I hope that means each one here has already made that decision to trust you as Savior, that heaven's your home, and how, Father, we as believers would do everything we can to work out our own salvation, to make our salvation evident in other people's eyes through what they see us do and how we talk and how we're grateful. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.